You are now listening to a Providence Community Church podcast. For more information, please visit ProvidenceTX.org. We're in Exodus chapter 25, starting verse 31 today. We're in the back third of our series through the book of Exodus, and we're calling it Heavenly Shadows, and we're focusing on things like the tabernacle, these things that God gave his people that are shadows of heavenly things, looking at our promise in the covenant with our God. And so once again, Exodus 25 verse 31 is where we're going to be reading today. Uh, If you brought your Bible, you can turn there. If you didn't, it's going to be on the screen. You probably have a smartphone and there is also a a hardback black one there in the seat pocket in front of you. You can grab and follow along with us. But once you get there or pretend you get there, if you're willing and able, you can stand with me for the reading of God's where we're going to read together. Once again, Exodus chapter 25, starting verse 31. So Providence, hear the word of the Lord. You shall make a lampstand of pure gold. The lampstand shall be made of hammered work. Its base, its stem, its cups, its calyxes, and its flowers shall be of one piece with it. And there shall be six branches going out of its side, three branches of the lampstand out of one side of it, and three branches of the lampstand out of the other side of it. Three cups made like almond blossoms, each with calyx and flower on one branch, and three cups made like almond blossoms, each with calyx and flower on the other branch. So for the six branches going out of the lampstand, and on the lampstand itself, there shall be four cups made like almond blossoms with their calyxes and flowers, and a calyx of one piece with it under each pair of the six branches going out from the lampstand. Their calyxes and their branches shall be of one piece with it, the whole of it a single piece of hammered work of pure gold. You shall make seven lamps for it, and the lamp shall be set up as to give light on the space in front of it. Its tongs and their trays shall be of pure gold. It shall be made with all these utensils out of a talent of pure gold. And see that you make them after the pattern for them, which is being shown you on the mountain. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Good morning, everyone. Good morning to you. If it is your first time, I want to say thanks for making us a part of your week. My name is Cord, and I'm one of the pastors here at the church. Uh, We're just really glad that you're here with us. Like Eric said, we're making our way through uh, the book of Exodus this year, and we have been working these last three weeks in uh, the back third, and and, and particularly talking about the tabernacle. And so uh, Ty started us off with the Ark of the Covenant. Eric has walked, uh, walked us through the bread of the presence, and this morning I want to talk about the lampstand, but before I do, I want to pray for us and ask the Lord to speak to us through his word. So if you'll bow your heads, I'll pray for us, and then we'll jump into the text. Father, we, we come before you humbly and with gratitude. Thank you that your word is truth. Sanctify us in that truth now, we ask. Holy Spirit, that you would trim our hearts that we might be humbled in your presence now, that we might hear from you, hear from heaven. My God, because what it is that we think that we need this morning may be entirely misguided, and so we ask that you'd show us what we really need. The things that we desire and want may be entirely misguided, and so we just ask that you'd give us clarity. And most of all, my God, we ask that you would Help us to see you in all of your glory and how you have provided for us in your son, Christ Jesus. 
that when we take of your supper later this gathering, that we would truly be satiated in our souls. And in so doing, it bring us great joy and peace, knowing that everything that we so desperately desire is manifested in you, Christ Jesus, in the gospel. And so we pray, help us, give us wisdom, give us clarity. And most of all, God, give us the courage and the confidence to be obedient to your word, we ask in Jesus' good name. Amen. Amen. So let's recap a little bit of the commands thus far that God has given unto Moses in particular about the tabernacle. So uh, Ty talked about the Ark of the Covenant. And and the Ark of the Covenant, I would say almost inarguably is, uh, in the history of Israel, it it was the most sacred item that you'll find uh, in all of Israel's history. It was... uh, a box of acacia wood that was in what was called the Holy of Holies of the tabernacle and the temple, the innermost chamber, right? It had the mercy seat on top of it, and it represented the covenant of God. All of the elements that were inside of it, Aaron's rod that budded, the, the two tablets of stone, um, all of the elements inside of the ark represented the covenant that God had with his people, and it was a reminder to them that their God had saved them out of Egypt. You'll see that continually as you read through the Old Testament that all the sacrificial system, whether in the tabernacle, which was like the mobile temple in the wilderness, or in the temple, which is later built by Solomon, which is a permanent setup, it's a reminder that God had redeemed them out of Israel, or out of, out of Egypt and into the promised land, which became the land of Israel. And the Ark of the Covenant sat at the very center of that temple tabernacle system. It was the, it was the meeting place of God with the high priest, which represented the people. And then last week, Eric, on the outside of that Holy of Holies, there's a curtain that separates the Holy of Holies from this next room, and Eric walked us through the bread of the presence, or the table of shoe bread is what the King James would say, bread of presence. And Eric pointed out that the table represented God's provision for the children of Israel. But really important for us to catch, not just manna in the wilderness provision, although we know that's a major theme, right, is they were hungry and God gave bread from heaven, but that the bread of the presence was meant to represent God's provision for their deep spiritual need, that Israel needed God in a very visceral way, that literally Israel wouldn't exist without him. That's the idea of the bread of the presence. And I want to point out one important thing, because it's going to be very important for us with a lampstand. Eric said, over and against all the pagan gods, because if you didn't, if you didn't read world history, it's, it's mentioned sometimes actually in the Old Testament scriptures, but all the pagan gods also, they would lay food out before them in their temples, whether it be Dagon or Baal, or they would lay food out for them. And then the priest or the pagan priest would light that food on fire. And it was supposed to symbolize that, you know, their gods were being fed by them. And Eric mentioned, and this is very important, that the Old Testament God of Israel, Yahweh, the one true God would tell the priest to eat the bread, that the bread of the presence would sit there and then the priest would eat the bread and that the communication from God to Israel was, I don't need bread from you, you need bread from me. I don't need to be fed by you, you need to be fed by me. That was what God was communicating. And so the priests who represent the people were always to consume the bread and then throw away what they didn't need and replace it again. And it was this perpetual guidance, a perpetual remembrance. Now, this morning we're talking about the lampstand, and what what does the Bible say about it? Well, the lampstand would have been in the second chamber, and it was placed directly opposite of the bread of the presence. You can see it in the picture behind me. 
And the lampstand is what many of you may have heard the word menorah. That's Hebrew for lampstand, right? So if you have Jewish friends or, you know, watch an Adam Sandler movie, this is uh, the menorah. That's a joke, by the way. I'm just kidding. Um, it has a stem in, in the middle, which is the larger candle of lampstand, and then three branches that, that branch out from it on each side, making seven lights or seven wicks, seven candles. And the Bible says these unique things from God to Moses about how it should be built. Number one, it should be pure gold. Number two, it should be made of one piece, multiple components, one piece. It's one lampstand. And there's no attachments. There's no, hey, we're going to, you know, this isn't an Ikea lampstand where you have to put, put together like a thousand pieces. It's one lampstand, okay? It has a base. It has a stem. It has six branches uh, that connect to the stem. And then all six branches have two cups on top of it with calyx and flower, calyx being the, the center part of a, of a flower, and the flower blossoms, okay, being the, the, the flower portion that they're talking about. And then the wicks, of course. So it looked like flowers on fire. That was at the top. And the only difference when the middle stem was instead of two cups, it had four cups making that middle stem. Notice in the picture behind me, it's a little taller, right? It's a little taller than all the other ones beside it. Now, the light from this lampstand would have lit the entire room. You got to think, if you're getting into a tent at a time when there's no electricity, the only light you would have probably seen would have been at the creases of the tent opening. Very dark it would have been, but you walk into this tent and it's completely lit up this entire room. And just as the bread was meant to be replaced continually, the book of Leviticus tells the priest they had to trim the wicks continually and this light, this lampstand was never to go out. Never let the fire go out. That was their command. So what was the purpose of the lampstand? There's a surface level and then there's a level deeper. At the surface level, there's nothing unique about its purpose in that it did what every lampstand was meant to do, which is to provide light for the room it's in, right? So that's just like the lights that we have on right now. I joked with the nine. If I turned the lights off, you couldn't see anything, and I turned it back on, and then there's a stranger sitting next to you. That's weird. Light illuminates, you know, exposes kind of who's being shady. You know, like that's... The light kind of tells us where we should sit, where we should go, and if we don't have it, then we don't have any guidance. But there's something more than that, and that is, what did the lampstand reveal? Or what did the light of the lampstand reveal? And this is why last week's sermon that Eric preached is so essential to this, because the lampstand stood exactly across from the table of the presence. So the light of the lampstand shone upon the table with bread. Meaning that it exposed or it illuminated God's provision for Israel. Remember, not just with manna, but in the deepest and most fundamental sense. And they were reminded that not, not only that God provides for them and their general needs, but that only God can provide, provide for their specific needs, namely those deep spiritual needs that he alone can expose. Now, I want you to think about this. The anguish that Israel had been experiencing in Egypt would not have been far from their mind. Egypt being the land of darkness, we talked a lot about it in the beginning podcast, right? But the people had already forgotten what it was like to live in that land of darkness, to live in that slavery. We know this because just a couple chapters ago, we saw that before they made it to the mountain, when they got hungry, they cried out and said, maybe we should just go back to Egypt and kill Moses. You guys remember that story? They're so hungry and so angry, they're ready to go back to Egypt already. And that was what preceded the manna. 
So don't think it's coincidental here that the bread of the presence is there and the light is shining on the bread of the presence because there's a twofold purpose. Not only that God provides from heaven, but it's a reminder that if you, if you didn't get the bread, you were willing to give everything up that you had won by sticking with the Lord, right? The lampstands shine the light of God's truth on God's people. And that truth was God, a life with God, is infinitely more precious than any life of luxury, that if you can live with God and be in the desert, that that's better off than being in Egypt and having all of the delicacies on your plate. The fact that the bread was called the bread of presence should tell us something about God. It tells us that it's only in the light of God's presence that we truly understand our own nature, our own fallenness, our own need for God. And then lastly, it's only that we see God rightly when we are in the light of his presence. It's only in the light of God's presence that we see our real need, which supersedes our superficial needs. Israel thinks we need bread, and God says, you need me. Israel thinks I need water, and God says, you need me. And this is important. Many times, uh, preaching through, for instance, we have 514 student ministries, right? And that's Matthew 514, you are the light of the world. And I've preached a sermon on that of some sort many times, especially my time in student ministry. And oftentimes I'll use the analogy of fumbling around in the dark and then someone flipping on the lights. If you've ever been in student ministry and you haven't used that analogy, well, shame on you, okay? But I want to say this. I don't think that works well for where we are right here, and I'll tell you why. Egypt wasn't just a bad place to raise a family, for the Israelites. Like it wasn't like Israel just needed to find a better school district and that's why they left. Okay? Egypt was not just, you know, Israel didn't just need to bargain with a, for a better labor deal with the Pharaoh. Like if we could get more straw for these bricks, it'd be fine. But you know, he's being a real, you know, you fill in the blank. <laughs> and we need to get these things right. That's not all they needed. The Bible records Egypt is a land of darkness ruled by evil. And apart from God's mighty hand, the Israelites would have all died there in the worst possible way. The policy of the time from the Pharaoh was to kill all the children, the male children. It was a genocidal plan. And so for us to say, well, you know, when God shines the light, it's kind of like whenever you're trying to get water in the middle of the night and you stumble over some coffee, you know, coffee tables or you, you know, fall down on your face because you tripped over your son's hoverboard that he always leaves out and he should never leave out. It's more personal for me, you can tell. And then God shines the light and he heals you all up. It's like, no, that's not like, it's not quite like that. It's more like you think you're in one place, God shines the light, you're, you're in the middle of a dungeon being destroyed. You thought you were in your bedroom and you're not. It's, a, it's an entirely different, when God shined the light through Moses to Israel, they realized that they were not just in a land that was kind of tough, they were in a land that would kill them. And the reason that I say this is that's what it means for the light of Christ to shine on you. It's that you see your spiritual condition is much more dire than you could have ever imagined. That's the lesson of the lampstand. It's not that when the light of Christ shines, you see that there's an opportunity for you to marginally change your life for the better. It's when the light of Christ shines, you realize that your condition couldn't be more dire. Now, how does the... Old Testament lampstand, what, what does it mean with New Test, for New Testament Christians? Like, what does the lampstand represent? Now, if you've been around, at least for the Exodus series, this is not going to shock you. The lampstand represents Jesus, which, by the way, if you just want to guess that, you're like 95% always right. 
Okay, just guess Jesus is who it represents. It does. And not, we're going to get into it. It's, it's, it's not only that but others, but at its core, Christ is the light. Christ is the lampstand of the tabernacle. I say this not because I'm just reaching, but in John chapter number one, verse number four, uh, this is John's gospel. He tells us that in him was life, and that life was the light of men, talking about Christ. Later on in this very same gospel, in John chapter number eight, Jesus is going to speak to the crowds, and in one of his sermons, he stands up and speaks to them, saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So it's not like Jesus is uh, kind of being coy about this, just outright in front. All the Jewish people would have heard that is, I'm the lampstand, I'm the light. And if you follow me, you'll stay in the light. I'm the perpetual light of life. Now, the problem is that much of Israel, much of the Jews that Jesus engaged with when he walked the earth, just like their forefathers, they did not understand their true need. So when they came to Jesus, they came to him with many needs. He fulfilled many of them, by the way. But his entire ministry was about uncovering the deeper need that they didn't know they had. So Jesus would do things like heal people, but then his aim was to teach them about a deeper need they had about their internal sickness spiritually. Jesus would feed people, but he wanted to teach them about something more deep than their physical hunger. Jesus would raise people from the dead, children that had died. He'd raise them, but then he wanted to tell them about the need for them to spiritually be born again. You know, Jesus constantly did this. Some examples, and some of you will know these, but um, in case you don't, some examples will be like John chapter number four, the woman at the well. She shows up to the well because she thinks she just needs water. As the conversation continues, and she realizes that Jesus is somebody at bare minimum who knows a little bit more. She says, I perceive you're a prophet. She thinks that she needs to have an argument about Samaritan religion versus Jewish religion. Which mountain should we worship on? Jesus' response to her is, if you knew who I was, you'd be asking me to draw you water. <laughs> he's trying for her. He's trying to get her to see. You think you need this, but what you really need is me. Peter, when he first meets Jesus, Jesus is teaching, and Peter's been fishing all night, and you guys know the story. He, Jesus asks Peter, hey, Peter, why don't we go out on the boat? And Peter responds, well, teacher, I've been out on the boat, and I didn't catch any fish. We can't miss that he says teacher, because he's saying, you're a teacher, I'm a fisherman. Why do I need you on my boat? Of course, we know they go out. The story goes that he catches so many, so many fish that his boat begins to sink. That's his entire living, by the way. And his friend's boat that he brought over to try to fill <laughs> starts to sink, too. And Jesus' words are wonderful, right? He says, Peter, I'm going to make you a fisher of men. You think you need to be a fisherman? I'm going to make you a fisher of men. He's totally inverting what it is that Peter thinks he needs. You think you need all these fish? That's not what you need. What you need is for me to change you. And lastly, you get the story of the crowds. Remember Jesus feeding the 5,000? By the way, you know Jesus didn't do this once. He did it multiple times. Jesus fed the 4,000 like a couple days later. So it kind of becomes a thing for him, and he draws the crowds. I think every church has tried to follow the same method ever since, just the free food method, you know? I remember when I first came to know Christ and I joined uh, the, the Christian Student Union or the Fellowship of Christian Athletes, I can't remember what it was. There were like eight of us. And the first thing, it's like my first uh, spiritual gift was let's buy donuts and give them away for free. And it works, okay? You draw big crowds of people. The thing is, if you don't have the donuts, the numbers dwindle. Jesus literally walked us through this in the book of John. John chapter number six, he feeds 5,000 people with a little boy's lunch, and they come back. The crowds follow him across the sea, and I don't blame them. 
because it's free food. And it's, he's not just like giving out free food. He's giving out free food in the desert and he's just kind of creating it. And so they show back up and Jesus says this, you should not labor for the food that perishes, but you should labor for the food that endures unto eternal life that the son of man can only give you. And they say, sir, give us this food always. And he says, I am the bread of life. He tells them, you think you want Mrs. Baird's and you need me. You think you want nature's own, but you need me. And you don't understand that you need me. And he, it's, he's so adamant about it because they keep going back and forth that he finally has one of his most intense sermons of all time. He says, my, my flesh is true, blood, or true food and my blood is true drink. Unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no life in you. By the way, it was a mass exodus. He lost his whole following except for the 12 that day. But the point was simple. Everyone who interacted with Jesus thought they knew what they needed and Jesus's job was to expose the real need beneath the superficial need. Israel thinks they just need to be out from underneath the thumb of Pharaoh. God shines the light of the lampstand to show you need something way deeper than that. In order to get there, let me say this. If we just pause here, why would anybody reject these offers, right? Have you ever really thought this through? If Christ shows up and he begins to preach about restoring you and healing you and forgiving you and showing you grace, why would anybody reject that offer? It seems kind of odd, right? When you read the scriptures, I know for myself, I didn't quite understand why anybody would really be mad at Jesus. I mean, he's, he's healing sick people. He's raising the dead to life. You ever been to a funeral? Could you imagine someone you really love dying? And then a guy shows up and says, don't worry, I'll fix it. Not like, I got a meal train for you. Not like, no, like, hey, don't worry. I can undo this. Who looks at that and says, get this guy out of here? Why did they do that? And many people did. Let's read, this is John chapter number three, verses 19 through 20. I want to mention, this is in the same conversation at the most famous verse in Western Christianity, right? John three sixteen. for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. Okay, but this is the back end of that. Listen to what Jesus tells Nicodemus here, starting in verse 19. He says, this is the judgment. The light, perk your ears, the lampstand, has come into the world. And people loved the darkness rather than the light. Why? Why? Because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his work should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Now we're getting somewhere. Now I want to give you a fair warning. Where we're getting is going to be a lot of uncomfortability before it gets peaceful, okay? But I already had to do the hard work of writing it, so everybody has to do the hard work of working through it with me. The light of Christ, when it shines, not only exposes that there's a land of darkness that we dwell in Egypt, that there's a depravity in our environment and our circumstances, we're not only made aware of how this land of darkness has affected us, but when Christ's light shines, we're made aware of our own complicity with that darkness. And that there's not only a land of darkness we dwell in, but there's darkness that dwells in us. We're made aware, in fact, that not only do we live in an evil land, but we are, in fact, an evil people that do evil things and love it. That's what Jesus said here to Nicodemus. It's not a popular sermon, by the way. If you want to know why people rejected Jesus, this is why. 
Now, what I want to point out is that all the stories I just mentioned, they all follow that same pattern. Here's an example from Isaiah 6. This is Isaiah chapter number 6. The prophet of God sees the Lord in the temple. Not coincidental. Think tabernacle. And he sees God high and lifted up, his train filling the whole place. He sees the glory of the light of the lampstand. And Isaiah's words are this. And I said, wow, I'm glad I'm here. No, he didn't say that, did he? He didn't say, and I said, let me write a new Christian song. No. And I said, woe is me for what? I am lost. I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. My eyes have seen the king, the Lord of hosts. I want you to know, it's not that you don't see that your environment and the land that you live in is evil. It's that what precedes that is you realize how lost you are are. The light of Christ never only shows you your environment. It starts with this internal environment that none of us really want to grapple with. We're okay with our neighbor being sinful. We are not crazy about somebody telling us about our sin. If you're married right now, you're okay with people telling you your husband's sinful. You're not so crazy about your husband talking about your sin. You're okay with us generally being imperfect. You're not okay with you individually being broken and messed up. And yet that's exactly what the light of Christ does. It exposes that. So if you want to know why Jesus was hated, it wasn't for any other reason than this. Men don't reject Jesus because of his miracles. They may say that. It's unbelievable he did that. That's not why they're rejecting him. Men don't reject Jesus because of his forgiveness. Men don't reject Jesus even because he died on the cross. No, men reject Jesus because trusting him includes admitting that the cross was something that they deserved. And that they cannot bear. That we cannot bear. We can bear with honoring a good man who spoke about loving our neighbor and extending forgiveness. We We can do with honoring someone who spoke about not retaliating when you're wronged. But mankind cannot bear the gospel because the gospel is about the son of God who took on flesh and absorbed the wrath, the just wrath of God Almighty for the sins that we committed. Let me make it more personal. That you and I committed individually. That's why people reject Christ. And there's a bunch of ancillary reasons they come up with. Archaeologists come up with, science comes up with to reject Christ. But at its core, it's because we don't like the idea that God could say, you deserve the cross, and not just we deserve the cross. See, we kind of blunts the edge, doesn't it? When I say we're all sinners, everybody's like, mm, amen. But if I say you, you right there with this color shirt on and this color hair and this color, you're a sinner in need of grace. You're like, whoa, this bigot. I'm out of here. Why? Was it any different when I said we? We like the collective we. We don't like, see, the light of Christ has a way of exposing you individually. If you speak with most people, you're most likely going to get them to concede that they live in a broken world. Most people, no matter what their belief is, almost everybody agrees. You may even get them to admit that they aren't perfect and they have flaws, generally, as long as you keep that collective. But here's the thing about the light of Christ. It doesn't stay collective. When when the light of Christ shines, it lays us bare individually. Think of the garden. Adam, where art thou? And I'm naked. Naked means I have nothing to hide myself. Who told you that you were naked? The woman. Adam didn't have to be taught at all how to try to make the sin collective. It was totally natural with sin. It's the woman's fault. The woman, it was the serpent's fault. The snake's the only one who has nothing to say because he knows I'm all about this. This is the aim. He loves what they said because they speak in the same pattern that he does. That fork-tongued liar 
taught them how to talk like that. And we talk like that. Now, the reason I say this is not because I, I enjoy thinking about myself in this way. Let me tell you, it's painful. I say it because, friends, if we don't get this, we will destroy ourselves in the darkness. We'll destroy our marriages. It looks something like this. I am done with him. He never sees how bad he is. I am leaving him one more time. Here's what I want to say to you. He's probably way worse than you could ever imagine. You thought I was going to say, don't be so hard on him. No, he's way worse than that. But let me ask you this. Have you looked in the mirror recently with the light of Christ shining? Because I'll tell you, when, you, when I look in the mirror, I have a hard time talking about other people's weight. Personally. I'm not offended by people's plate when I look in the mirror. It's when I never look at myself, I think, my gosh, look what they're eating. I mean, come on, KFC, a whole bucket for yourself. <laughs> Until I look in the mirror and I realize it looks like I inserted the bucket inside of myself. He's worse than you think he is, but my point is so are you. You know how I know that's true without knowing you? Is because the Bible says all of us are that way. If we could truly see the depths of ourselves in light of a holy God, in light of the lampstand's presence, we would all, like Isaiah say, I am lost. See, Isaiah's a prophet. He's probably more righteous than you. If I had to guess, probably more righteous than you. And he said, I am completely undone. Job was the most righteous man who was walking the earth at the time. When he met God, he said, I now see you with my eyes and I despise myself. Now, some of you are making this mistake right now in reverse. You're like, say that again, Court. My wife really needs to hear it. She is always on my case. I try to tell her what you're saying. She doesn't hear it. No, dummy. I need you to hear me. You are worse than she knows. You would do well to let the light of Christ shine. And when she says something like, you are totally irresponsible right now to go, that's, that's, you know, that's probably true. And repent. I know it's like vinegar to our lips. I, you know, saying I'm sorry is worse than almost anything, especially as we get older. The older we get, the more we think, well, why should I say I'm sorry? Because we're so focused. We see everyone else's sins so clearly. That it, and we see it with such, such great uh, clarity that we, we ourselves look righteous. And so we say, well, I'm not going to apologize until she does. Look into the eyes of Christ and let his light shine upon you. It's only then that you'll truly see just, just how easy that repentance should be. It should roll off of your tongue as easy as anything else. Young people, you'll ruin your relationship with your parents if you don't hear me. Some of you, my dad is so ridiculous. He's always on my case. I cannot wait to get out of this house. Now, I want you to consider this for a moment and work with me, please. Maybe you're only doubly as squirrely as your dad thinks you are, but I would imagine it's triple or quadruply as squirrely as he knows. And so maybe my guess is that you would do better to let the light of Christ shine on yourself and realize your biggest enemy is not your Pharaoh father. Your biggest enemy is looking at you in the mirror, the sin that seeks to easily entangle you. And don't think because you're 14, 15, 16, they are going to deal with that sin later. Oh, no, it, has, it started quickly trying to own you. And very quickly, it tried to tell you that your biggest enemy is the one who currently right now buys your food. 
I could go on forever like this, right? Like some of you, you have miserable jobs. You want to tell everybody about your miserable job. And listen to me, maybe, it, you know, my job's miserable. My boss is miserable. And I want to tell you, maybe it is miserable. Maybe your boss is the worst, but maybe, just maybe, it's so miserable because you are miserable too. And you bring that misery into your job. And then you look everywhere else and say, look at all these miserable people I'm around. But listen to me, miserable people will find miserable people to commiserate with. Maybe your home life is stale. My wife never encourages me. My kids are disobedient. But maybe it's stale because you've abdicated, men, your responsibility to lead your own home. Maybe you don't love on your wife. So you're looking for that encouragement, but the encouragement hasn't come from you. Maybe you don't engage with your kids. And maybe you justify all of this in your mind because you refuse to admit that you are sinning and need to repent. You don't have a reason. Well, let me rephrase. You've got a ton of reasons But listen to me, when you stand before God, all those reasons are going to look ridiculous. And deep down in your heart, you know they're ridiculous. They just curb the edge to keep you from repenting right now. Our entire world is under this illusion that if we could just tweak the system, we'd be freed from sin. I just want to tell you, that's not in the Bible. We even have euphemistic words, academic words, to feel better about this. The problems of our world are systemic. These are institutional issues that we must address before we could ever get down to why we're all struggling. Problems are political. The problems are with the elites. But I dare say to you, listen to me when I say this, maybe the Roman occupation of Israel during Jesus' time was a little bit more, I don't know, politically corrupt. Maybe a little bit more institutionally messy. And yet, if you can find one moment where Jesus looks individually into the eyes of another and says, I have no need to forgive you of your sins because they only exist because of the institutional corruption of this Roman Empire. And therefore, I'm reconsidering the cross. Listen, we will not stand before God in committee form. We will not stand before God with all of our environmental circumstances to point and blame at. We may try to bring them into the courtroom. God doesn't allow them in the courtroom. There is us, and then there's your plea, and here's your plea, Christ and his mercy. Not, I did it because of this, I did it. No, I repent of sin. God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Not, it's because my wife, I shouldn't have married that woman. No, you didn't sin because your wife's rough, and she may be. You sin because you're a sinner. You sin because you're a sinner in need of grace, and you're so prideful that you won't repent of that sin. Now, before you say, this guy, I hate this guy, and that's fine. Me too. I'm not saying, hey, you need to come back to God right down here. I'm saying, hey, I'm going to be down here. Maybe you should join. Your environment is not the reason that you sin. The circumstances and the sins of others are like number 1,573 on the list of reasons why you make sinful decisions. It may be on the list as, a, as an impact, But if we're really going apples to apples here, your greatest enemy will look you in the mirror every morning and try to tell you that it's not about you. It's not your sin. It's everybody else's. And the forked tongue serpent is right at your elbow saying, yes, yes, it's not you. Yes, yes, it's not you. You ever notice that he says that until you actually do make a grave error and then he comes and says, look how bad you are. God would never accept someone like, look how filthy you are. 
you want to know why people rejected Jesus, it's not because of all the reasons that are given. It's because the path to rescue, redemption, forgiveness, grace, wholeness, it runs directly through a town called humble repentance. And although you may make many trips with Christ from that town to go out with him, you will always come back and return to that town called humble repentance. And the truth is, human beings in our nature, we don't like it. The idea that God would have authority and call us to repentance, that he would be able to call the shots, that he would say that what's deserved in us is the cross. But I need you to hear this, friends. You don't get Christianity without starting there because how could you trust and believe and worship the God who died for you on the cross if you don't think it was really even necessary? And let me tell you that the level of your worship is commensurate with how necessary you think it was. What do I mean by that? The depths of your worship, Jesus asked Peter, who loves a man, who loves a man more um, if you forgive a man's debt? A man who had a little debt or a man who had a lot of debt? And he said, the man who had a lot of debt will love him more. You see, the light of Christ shows us how much debt we had accrued in sin. And it causes us to love the God who sent his son to die on a cross more as we see just how much debt we accrued. Now you might be saying, Court, I don't like this. The whole sermon makes me feel weak, makes me feel dependent, needy. I don't like it. And I just want to tell you, it doesn't make you feel like that. You are like that. That's what light does. It doesn't make you feel anything. It shows you what's true. And the only other option is to pretend like you aren't weak, like you aren't needy, like you aren't in need of a savior, but the light says you are. And it's like, oh, I don't like it. I squirm. Agreed. Agreed. But it's only when the light shines that then we can run to the one in the room who can save us. All right, I'm going to end. I know some of you are like, thank goodness. Well, I want to end with a little bit even more hope here. Christ is not the only one in the New Testament called the light. Jesus tells his disciples in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, 14, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Now that at first glance seems odd, doesn't it? Well, who is it? Is it Christ or is it us? You've been sitting here saying just how dark we are. What's up here? That's not what Jesus said. See, this is where the hope comes in. Let's remember the construction of the lampstand. You have one stem in the middle, the highest, representing Jesus, right, at the center of it all. And then you have six branches that come off of that one stem. Six is the number of man. Man was created on the sixth day. And all throughout the Bible, six is the number of man, representing mankind. Mankind is attached when it is attached and abiding in and communing with Christ has light. But not only light, right? Because what's at the top of there that we thought was kind of odd with the, the flowers that are blooming? In John chapter number 15, Jesus, listen to me, speaking to his disciples, just like the Sermon on the Mount was to his disciples, says, I am the vine and you are the branches. Abide in me and I in you and you will bear much fruit and prove to be my disciples. This is where the light and the flowers come together. Jesus is the vine. He is the stem. And we are his branches. And when we abide in him and he in us, then we will bear much fruit flowers and shine the light of Christ across the earth. So you see, the intent of God in shining the light is not only to expose your need. It's not even only to provide for your need and show you where he is, but it's to invite us into communion with him which will cause us to share in the light of his presence. Listen to me on this. God does not only expose your need like a masochist and say, look at how bad you are. 
He also doesn't only say, look at how bad you are, and look, I'm going to forgive you like a ceasefire. He says, my intention is not just to cleanse you, forgive you, and make you whole, but to make you mine, my own family, to make you one with me, and listen to this, make you like me, to share in my glory, he says, to be one with Christ, union with Christ. Don't think it's coincidental that they sit down and they eat the broken bread, like we're going to do here in a minute, and in the light of God's presence, they consume the bread that Jesus says, I am the bread of life, one with him we are and then we will bear much fruit. Friends, just as our sin runs deeper than we could ever imagine, which means that our need runs deeper than we could ever imagine, so it is that God's salvation in the gospel is more glorious than you could ever imagine. The more you realize the depth of the sin, the glory only increases and increases and increases. And just as it runs more deep than our personal circumstances, so our salvation runs more deeply than our own personal fulfillment. God saves you that his light might shine on you, that his light might shine in you, now hear me, and that his light might shine through you. All of them. Now the thing that stood out for me as I prepared for this sermon, right from the jump, was that at least three times the Bible records that the way that this lampstand was going to be forged was with hammer work. And that led me, I want you guys to know, on your behalf, it led me down a YouTube wormhole, okay? I, looked, I watched so many videos of how gold is forged. It's a little embarrassing, I'm going to be honest. I was watching all sorts of this different, I'm subscribing to these people now. It's bad. I wish I had time to walk you through it all. But very simply, the way that, how could you make all these components and make that gold one piece? You ever thought about that? Let me tell you how. The hottest fire you can imagine and hammer work and consistent beating the metal into one, back in the fire, beating the metal into one, back in the fire, beating the metal into sanding, 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 back in the fire for hours and hours and hours until it's one. And I thought, you know, how can I feel confident standing before you all today and call us to humility and repentance, knowing that I myself am a sinful man? Here's why, because I know the Christ who will receive you he has endured all of the hammer work on your behalf so that the Father now does not hold the hammer to punish you when you come with your sin, but instead has open hands to receive you. Now this is the gospel, the beauty of the gospel. You come in confession and repentance and you feel like, look what I deserve. And Christ says, I endured that for you. All of the hammer work he has endured. He went through the fires and torment of suffering for you. And so if you're in Christ this morning, I want to say the punishment and the penalty due for your sin has been paid. So when you come to the Father this morning, dirty and mangled by sin, you can be confident, like Israel, that the lampstand will not just illuminate your filth, it will illuminate your loving Savior who waits for you with patience and loves you. And I pray that it's Romans chapter 2, the kindness of our God that leads us to that kind of repentance that you know when you run to him, you're not going to be cast out. Let me pray for us. Jesus, your name and your name alone, we cry out because we know that it's only by that name that we can be saved. We're going to sing your name in a moment. 
And before we do, as we take of your supper, we ask now, my God, would you move upon our hearts that in confession and repentance, we might find real restoration in your presence. Real union in this communion. And may the meditations of our heart and the words of our mouth in these songs ring true because they succeed repentance. (laughs) They come on the heels of a heart of contrition. And we thank you, Jesus, that you stand at the ready to receive us. We pray it in your precious name. Amen.